I ask you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I'm going to again, again, just for the sake of context and continuity, I'm going to read again the, the entire first chapter. So if you'll follow along with me as I read Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, A great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the 
young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So we began to look at this uh, chapter in the book of Job along the lines of of the four headings that I presented to you uh, back in March. And uh, those four headings were the character of Job, the character of Job maligned, the character of Job tested, and the character of Job expressed. And so we began to look at the character of Job. And in this first section, in verses 1 through 5, the author we saw sought to highlight and even emphasize the prosperity and the piety of this man Job. Now he does this in order to demonstrate how objectively tremendous Job's fall was and to help us to see that absolutely no one is immune to adversity and to suffering. Possessions nor piety can shield us from the adversity that is in this life. The question, do the righteous suffer, is unequivocally answered in the book of Job. And the answer is, no one is immune to tragedy. Absolutely no one. And so we saw that the writer of the book of Job, again, highlighted thoroughly the prosperity of Job. And he he mentioned over and over again that he was the greatest man in the land. And not only this, he mentioned the, the piety of Job and how Job was such a, a godly man. And it would have been in their minds, of course, that the prosperous, those who, who, who are po- prosperous financially, this is their theology. Those who are, are righteous in the earth, they do not suffer. And Job dismantles this way of thinking. He dismantles it completely so that they would understand without a doubt that the, that the righteous do suffer and go through adversity. We saw also the character of Job maligned. How many of you know what a rice Christian is? Have you heard of the term rice Christian? No one. So the term rice Christian appeared in the writings of a man by the name of William Dampier. He was an English explorer who visited the Indo-Pacific waters in the late 17th century. And this man dismissively wrote of the French uh, priests active at that time in Indochina. So he was, these people were ser- serving in, in Asia. And he said there that alms of rice have converted more than their preaching. In other words, they were bringing 
medical supplies and food to these third world countries. And they believe that these people were coming to Christ based upon the fact that they had received these blessings from God. And now they were following God because of the things that they had received from these missionaries. And so they were the term, the term rice Christian became synonymous with those who began to follow Christ for material benefits rather than for religious reasons. And so this is what, in some sense, is what Job is accused of by Satan. Satan says to Job or to God in verse nine of chapter one, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? This is the question that he presents to God and says, why does Job follow you? Why does he fear you? Why does he walk after you? It's because of what you've done for him. It's because you've placed a hedge of protection around him. You've granted him this great wealth. He's the greatest man in all of the land. He has 10 children. You've blessed the fruit of his his loins. And now, because of these things, you now protect him from any kind of adversity. Surely he will follow you. And God, of course, says, no, this is not why God why Job follows me. Now, this questioning of, of Job's character, as I mentioned to you, was not only an affront to Job, but it was also an affront to God. It was also maligning the character of God. So in that, in that questioning of Job, he asked both the question of, Job, why, do you, why does Job follow you? Job is only following you because of the benefits that are provided for him through following you because you've placed the hedge of protection around all that he has. But God, you're not worthy to be followed because of your intrinsic value and because of who you are. You're only followed because you give gifts to these people and they follow you not because of the worth that is within yourself, but because of the things that you give to them. And so we ask the question is, why do we serve God? Why do you follow Christ? Is it because of what he's done for you? Because of his intrinsic value, who he is? The worth of his holy name. And this morning, we're going to consider the character of Job tested. The character of Job tested. In his book entitled, Change into His Image, and the subtitle is God's Plan for Transforming Your Life, author Jim Berg illustrates the principle that who we are is revealed in our time of testing and trials. Who we are is revealed in our time of testing and trials. In this book, he gives an illustration to highlight and emphasize that who we are on the inside is really drawn out when we are put through the furnace of affliction. And he uses the example of a teabag. He says, when we take a teabag, and place it in a cup, 
and fill the cup with hot water, the water activates the tea in the bag, unleashing its taste into the water around it. The hot water didn't create the taste. It merely revealed or drew out what was already in the bag. He says this depicts what happens in the human heart. The pressures around us, the unfavorable circumstances, the temptations, and the commands of God to love him and our neighbor merely draw out of our heart what is already in our hearts. He says we cannot blame the hot water for the taste in the cup. The contents of the tea bag determine the flavor of the tea. If we don't like the particular taste, we need to put into the water a bag containing a different kind of tea. In other words, who you are is who you are in your time of testing, and no less. When you are put through the furnace of affliction, that un with certainty reveals to you who you are and what your trust is in. The principle of testing and God testing his children is found throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 48, Isaiah writes, Behold, I have refined you, speaking of God is speaking here, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. In Proverbs 17, 3, it says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart and so, hearts. And so God tests our hearts. And usually in the scriptures, the language is given to us of a refining fire. And the refining fire is used to remove the dross, those things are impure, from that which is pure and right and not mixed with anything else. And so oftentimes the Bible uses that kind of language of the furnace of affliction, drawing out from the person the dross and leaving behind only that which is pure in the first two examples we gave you, to, it was speaking here of silver and of gold. Job knew this himself. In Job 23, verse 10, it says, Job writes, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And he's speaking here of pure gold, of pure gold, with, without any without being mixed with impurities. This is what he is speaking of here. We have this principle in the New Testament. Peter writes to the suffering Christians in the diaspora, he says of them, with regard to the affliction that they were enduring, the persecution, he says, that they are enduring this persecution so that the proof of your faith, listen here, the proof of your faith, showing the purity of your faith. Are you truly mine? Do you truly belong to me? Are you truly a child of God? 
that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the principle of God testing us and and placing us in a furnace of affliction is throughout the scriptures. It's throughout the scriptures. And so the character of Job, Job tested, we're going to look at it under three headings. We're going to look at it under the depth of Job's test, the derivation of Job's test, and the design of Job's test. Consider, first of all, the depth of Job's test back in chapter 1. I want you to, first of all, notice the limits that God places around Job's test. In verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, When God unleashes and allows allows Satan to afflict Job, verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Here comes the limitation. He says, Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan's testing of Job is limited. God does not give Satan a blank check to do whatever he wants to to Job. He limits Job's suffering by limiting Satan's power in the testing. And so we find here, and we'll talk about this more in just a moment, that God is sovereign over Job's testing here. That no matter what Satan may desire to do, maybe even bring Job to the end of himself and kill him, perhaps even. That's not God's plan in these things. And so God limits Satan's power. And this is true in all situations. Satan is limited by the power of God. Satan's power is only derived from God and no more. Satan can only do that which God allows him to do and no more. Consider also and notice also the rapid nature of Job's test. Notice the rapid nature of them. It says in verse 14, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell them. He says in verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said. And he speaks of the second trial. The third one, he says in verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said. And he, he speaks of this third trial, and this third test that was given to him. And then the fourth one, he says, while he was still speaking in verse 18, another also came and said, And again, brings to him 
the news of his trial. But he here he notices we notice here that these things come in rapid fire succession. He's not even able to take a breath between these trials and these difficulties. You probably have experienced this yourself. One moment you have things that seem to be going well, then all of a sudden you, you start having physical problems. There's a financial difficulty arises. A child is wavered or something happens. Or, or you, you know how it is when you, when you hear of those things, they kind of keep piling on one after another. We've all experienced this. We have a, my wife and I have a, in 2005, 2006, we had a, uh, a series of deaths in our family. So in, in September of 2005, uh, my wife's grandfather died. And in 2006, five of that same year, um, in November, my mother died. Uh, and then in May of 2000, no, it was April, it was May, May of 2006, uh, my youngest sister's uh, son, who was five years old at the time, suddenly died. And then in June of 2006, after a stint of, of living with us, my wife's mother died. And so it was one thing after another. Over and over again, these, these difficulties came. And, and my wife and I, we have, a, we have a thing right now, and specifically from my sister, my oldest sister, who, who kind of is the purveyor of, of, of information from home, uh, when I see her number come up on my phone, I often brace myself. I brace myself because she infrequently calls me, but when she calls me, it's often the bearing of bad news. And so when she calls me now, <sighs> and so you can imagine Job here now. One after another, servants coming in. One out on, on the heels of one another. Mr. Job, look what happened. And here comes another servant. You can, you can feel the, the weight of his, 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 his anxious expectation as as, a, as the servants come in one after another, they come in rapid fire succession. And you can be overwhelmed by this. You can be overwhelmed by the rapid nature of trials. Finally, notice the ever increasing intensity of Job's tests. Notice the ever-increasing intensity. First of all, in verse 14, Job loses some of his livestock. Verse 14. And perhaps Job was being the greatest man in all the earth. He was wealthy beyond measure. Perhaps he thought in his mind. I lost a lot, but I still have a lot remaining. So then comes another one. Verse 16. 
while he was still speaking, another also came, and the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell them, to tell you. So now he loses more of his wealth and more of his fortune. And perhaps Job is even thinking his mind, well, at least I still have these things here or those things there. It says in verse 17, another one happened, another occasion came, and then it probably was the final uh, blow that wiped out all of his wealth, and it says in verse 17 that while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So all that he has now has been removed. So remember, the greatest man in all the land, everything he has now, has gone. And perhaps Job might even be thinking in his mind, well, at least I have my family. We all do these things. We say, well, at least I have this. And, we, we, and, and, and we, we think in our minds, at least I have this remaining. But then he hears perhaps the worst news of all. In verse 18, while he was still speaking, Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Notice what happens after this. When, when, when he receives this news here. For Job, this was the final blow. In verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. It's a picture of mourning here. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. The final blow. The final blow. God has allowed him, through the testing of Satan here, to hear of the, the worst possible news that could have come to his ears, his children, his ten children, his seven sons and his three daughters, all removed in one fell swoop, must have been absolutely terrifying and overwhelming for Job. But listen, it's not over. It's not over. That was round one. If you turn over in chapter two, remember the limitation that God set upon uh, Satan? He said what? I release him into your power, but do not what? Don't touch his person. He removes the restraint. He sets another boundary, of course. Keep his life. But in chapter 2, he he actually unleashes Satan and allows Satan to do what he wants to do. He says, and this is Satan's accusation, he says, Satan says in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. 
However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So now he's saying that, yeah, we, we've, I've, we've tried all those other things. I've, I've, I've tested him to the limits of human endurance, he says, but, but there's one more thing that I know this man holds so precious in his life that he would be willing to even curse you, God, if I would allow him to do this. And he says, allow me now to touch his person. And God has such confidence in his servant, Job. He has such confidence in knowing what Job will do and how he will respond. He says, go ahead and have him. I know why Job follows me. I know why he fears me. And so God allows Satan to test him. He allows him to afflict him in his body, in his person. And the Bible says in Job chapter 2 that Satan afflicted him with boils, sore boils. And it says from the crown of his head, they covered his body from the crown of his head to the very soles of his feet. How many of you ever had a boil on your body? You know how that feels, right? You ever had, you ever, ever had one on your arm and you, you know how tender it is and how sore it gets and how it swells up and it becomes tender in that area and, and as it's, then at some point it erupts So you can imagine now this man, Job, has been afflicted by Satan and he has these boils from the top of his head to the very soles of his feet. This means, by the way, this is this is just speaking uh, metaphorically. It was on every part of his body. It was everywhere. These boils were or they were everywhere. So was so awful. It says Job, and so agonizing that he says that Job sat down in the dust and he took a potsherd, it was a piece of pottery, and he began to scrape his boils just to bring some measure of relief. It was perhaps itching and maybe even, maybe even swelling to the point where he's trying to open him up to release some of the pressure from the pus inside the boil. He's just scraping his skin. It was so awful. He was unrecognizable. If you read in the end of chapter two, his friends saw him from afar and as they they saw him from afar, he was unrecognizable. They couldn't even they didn't even know who he was. It was so bad. And so God allows even his this part of his of, of Satan's plan to be enacted. But Job has received increasing intensity to this testing. Now consider now the derivation of Job's test. Now what I mean by the derivation of Job's test, I mean the source of Job's test. From where did this testing come from? Now, sometimes our suffering comes from different, uh, through different means. 
Sometimes our trials are the result of our own sin. The principle of sowing and reaping are are intrinsic in the Bible's testimony of of who we are as human beings living in a fallen world. That if if you do certain things, there are consequences that follow from walking in those things and living in a certain way for this is God's design. This is a natural design of, of our world and creation that God has given to us. The principle of sowing and reaping in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. He will reap. If we sow to the flesh, as we've been learning from Pastor Ernest, we will reap from the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap from the spirit. But sometimes our trials are a result of our own sin. For example, a man receives an official letter in the mail from his wife's lawyer saying that she is seeking a divorce. The man has been living in adultery for years. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. He's reaping a divorce because he's sown to his flesh in adultery for years. Sometimes our trials are the result of living in a fallen world. Now, this can come through fallen creatures. Sometimes uh, fallen creatures are the result or the, or the, the cause of our, of our trials. And God uses this, by the way. For example, in Psalm 66.10, it says, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. That's that principle of God. Remember, we talked about this God trying us. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men, it looks like this, you made men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water, yet you brought us into a place of abundance. So God uses sometimes, or sometimes fallen creatures are used As a source of trial for us. Sometimes it comes from Satan himself. Sometimes it comes from Satan himself. Now, I don't believe that most of our trials are directly from Satan. I don't believe that. I believe most of our trials that we endure are typically from living in a fallen world and living among fallen human creatures. You know, there are some who blame everything on Satan. Satan made me do it. That's not what we're talking about here. But we do have to understand that we do have an enemy of our souls who who seeks to make us woe, who desires our demise, who comes to kill and to destroy People of God. And so sometimes, as I said, our trials are the result of our own sin. Sometimes our trials are the result of living in a fallen world through creatures and 
fallen creatures and through Satan. But always our trials come from the hand of God. They always come from the hand of God. God is always a part of the fountainhead from whence our trials come. Now, Job understood this. Job saw the Chaldeans coming and raiding his home. He saw the Sabians coming and raiding his home. But notice what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, this is at the end of his trial, his testing, that first test. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who took away his land? Who took away his, his livestock? Who is ultimately the hand that is behind the trials and the difficulty, the testing that has come upon him? Job understands and acknowledges that this is from the hand of God. He says, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In Job 2.10, as he is responding to his wife, by the way, uh, Mrs. Job is, you know, I would say that was a test in and of itself. He, here he is. He's lost everything. He lost his 10 children. And now he hears his wife in chapter 2, verse 10, saying to Job, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. And so she sides in a sense with Satan here and and, and exhorts him to do what Satan was actually trying to get him to do. The wife of his youth. The one he had given his, his covenant to, with, with his whole life with. She is now siding with the one who has put his hand against him. And that was a very powerful blow. But he says in here to her, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks in verse 10 of chapter 2. Shall we indeed accept God, good from God and not accept adversity? He, said, and he says, we have to accept both good from God and adversity from God. I want you to notice, he didn't say good and evil. Some of your translations might, I do believe, say good and evil. What he's saying there, he's saying, he's saying we, we accept good from God and adversity from God. Not evil in the sense that evil comes from the hand of God, because God does not tempt us with evil. And so the language, that, that the translation there of some of your, 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 your scripture is that we, we don't accept good and evil. It really should be good and adversity from God. Because God does not tempt us with evil. Nor is he tempted by evil. For God is holy, holy, holy. Now, in the midst of all this, Job endured. As we see at the end of the book of Job, Job endured until the very end of these things, of this testing. Now, why did Job endure to the end? I believe Job was able to endure this testing because of the fact that he understood where the testing was coming from. Job knew the source, the, 
where this testing had derived from. It wasn't, he wasn't the, the, the victim of an unsolicited raid by the Chaldeans or, or unprovoked raid by the, by the Sabians. No, he understood that even behind that, it was the hand of God. We see clearly in some of these, these, this testing in chapter 1 that it had to be the hand of God. It says the fire from heaven came down. Where did that fire come from? Where did the whirlwind that, 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 that erupted on the four corners of the house of his children, where did that whirlwind come from? Who controls those things? So we understand, of course, that this is God. But Job was able to endure. In fact, Job is held forth as an example of enduring trial in the New Testament. In James chapter 5, verse 11, it says that we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Why did Job endure? I believe Job endured because, first of all, he understood that God was in his trouble. That the trials that he was enduring, the testing that he was enduring, was from the hand of God. And no less from the hand of God. How do we reconcile the language of these things where we see God's hand And we see the hand of Satan at work here. In the London Baptist Confession, in the uh, chapter 3 in the first paragraph of God's decree, it says this. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. Meaning that human beings act in accordance with who they are, okay? Creatures act in accordance with who, who they are. The fallen creation does what the fallen creation does. He says, but without the second cause is taken away, he says, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. We would say in terms of that God uses sin sinlessly. He uses sin sinlessly. An example of that is found in, in the death of our Lord. In Acts chapter 4, we read this. Let's actually read in verse chapter 2, verse in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, As Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, 
a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So whose plan was it to put Jesus to death? If you read in the scriptures, in, 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 the, in, the, in the, the gospels, it speaks of the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. They planned to kill Jesus. But here, in Acts chapter 2, we see that it's saying here that this was according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This was also God's plan. This is why we see in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 53 that it was It pleased God to what? To crush his son. It pleased him to crush his son. Now in Acts chapter 4, we see clarity here. It says, for truly in the city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So who, who plotted these things? Who executed these things? Who gave him up? Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews. They all did it. They all are guilty. They all are culpable before a holy God for what they did to Jesus. And yet we see the scriptures tell us that it pleased him to crush his son. A truth and a reality of God's hand at work and man acting in accordance with who he is in his nature as fallen creatures. And yet God not being culpable for the sin. He's he's pure and holy. He's only using those creatures to act in a way that they normally would act. They were murderous creatures. They wanted to murder Jesus. Murder was in their heart. God did not put any kind of fresh evil in their hearts from the beginning. They were of their father, the devil, who was was a murderer from the beginning. have to understand this. If we are to endure trials, we must know very simply, this is simple, we must know and we must live this out. This, this truth must lay hold of us when we are in our trial that, that, that God's hand is there, that God's hand is moving in that situation. I would say this is suffering 101. It's a suffering one-on-one. If we do not believe this truth, we will suffer poorly. We will not be good stewards of our trials. We will not be stewards who are faithful with those trials. And I, I chose my words purposefully. That When we understand that God has 
granted to us to suffer for his name's sake, according to Philippians 1.29, that this is a gift from God. We have to see it as a stewardship from God. Just like God would, as he gives to us uh, wealth and possessions and we are to steward those things, so too God gives to us our trials and we are to steward our trials and to use our trials in such a way that those trials bring glory and honor to God. Maybe that language is alien to your ears. Your trials this morning, let me say this to you. Your trials this morning are a stewardship from God. How are you stewarding your trials this morning? How are you dealing with your trials? Are you dealing with your trials and your suffering in a way that you are being a faithful steward of that gift from God? Is the sovereignty of God in the trial that you are going through right now, is the sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God giving direction to your thinking and to your heart as you're going through these things this morning? How are you dealing with your trials? Are you, are you considering these very basic truths that God is sovereign in our trials? For the sake of time, let me quickly consider the design of, God, of Job's test. Let me hold off. Let me hold off. I don't have enough time for that. Let me hold off the design of Job's test. I'll pick that up next week. But let me again ask you the question. Are you stewarding the trials that God has given to you? They're designed for you. You know that, right? I hear people saying sometimes, well, at least you're not, your trials aren't like Job's trials, or at least they're not like this person. And that gives us perspective. That doesn't mean it's not a trial to you. It's not a trial to that person. And, and sometimes we can, and this is, this is sometimes counsel we give to people. We'll say to people, well, you well, you're not going through what he's going through. That doesn't mean it's not hurting them. They're not, it's not like they're not dealing with a lot. That's poor counsel, by the way. <laughs> you don't do that. You need to know. You need to know the time to say that. Like like settings of silver and, 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 and like apples of silver and settings of gold is a right word spoken in the right season. And it needs to be spoken at the right time. There's a time to say that. When someone is enduring great trials, that may not be the time to say that. We need to be wise counselors, brothers and sisters. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. We start talking about the counsel of Job's friends. But let me stop for the sake of time this morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to be, as we ourselves are tested, help us to be good stewards of the tests that we receive. May we endure the test in such a way that we show forth as pure gold, as those who have been refined in the furnace of affliction. May our lives uh, be a testimony 
of the grace of God for us and in us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.